Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The chair will put Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The bill is passed. We've created a commitment to America. Those in favor say aye. We're just three days away from the first government funding deadline. Hello and welcome back to Control, a podcast where we look around the corner at the challenges and priorities facing Congress. I'm one of your hosts, Annalise Keller. And I'm your other host, Brendan Buck. Welcome back to the show. And what a mess we have here uh, on this week's of Control. We, of course, going to get into everything around funding the government this week. It is another shutdown watch week, first deadline looming. Um, but I honestly, I feel like this week is like why we started this podcast. There's so much uh, interesting stuff going on, dynamics, the Freedom Caucus trying to revolt against a spending bill, the speaker trying to figure out what to do about that, all kinds of process questions uh, we're going to have to answer. Uh, we've got a big four meeting down at the White House this week to talk about uh, that topic, but I assume also uh, foreign aid for Ukraine and Israel. We still have a lot of open questions about what uh, could potentially happen there, and, and we'll get into some of the different mechanisms that could uh, resolve that issue. Um, but lots of interesting leadership dynamics going on this week, and of course, we are back on Shutdown Watch. Yeah, I was patiently waiting on Sunday night for the appropriations uh, package to, to be released, uh, as we've seen these last few weeks with big Sunday night news. was disappointed there. I feel like we've been sounding the alarm about this deadline for a month, and everybody now is sounding the alarm. Um, it just didn't feel like things were moving like they should. And what do you know? Here we are uh, just a few days away, and we are missing pretty fundamental like checkpoints along the way. Yeah, I, I read something that this is the fourth time in six months that we are on shutdown watch. So like every six weeks, you know, we're, we're here again. There is, I think, a, an open political question of how much people like even register this registers for anybody because they, they hear it so often. And what do you know? We may have a few more CRs and we'll have more deadlines, um, but we'll we'll get into that, of course. Yeah, it's also kind of interesting. So, you know, we we were not really jazzed on the laddered CR idea. Um, obviously, like March 1, so everybody knows there's four probes bills, arguably kind of the easier bills that need to get done, Milcon VA, agriculture, energy and water, transportation and housing and urban development. Uh, and then we have another deadline on the 8th, uh, March 8th. So it's kind of interesting to me that they set up these two deadlines and now there's all this talk of a short-term CR uh, that might just get everything to one day again i mean we'll like time will tell but i don't know what's the point of a laddered cr anyway there was never a point of the laddered uh cr look uh, i guess you know a cr it always is better than a shutdown but also at some point if you're <clears throat> democrats or even senate republicans you probably need to just kind of stop and say like no, like enough. Like, what, what? Why are we continuing to draw this out? I mean, we, we've had these numbers set for months now. We, we've known what these bills were going to be. Um, and I guess we'll just, you know, kind of like point to this is what reporting is. Reporting is that um, there's a lot of holdups over House Republican policy rider requests, things that I think are very unlikely were always very unlikely. Um, to, to get done. 
Um, and if that's really what's going on here is Johnson is trying to find some way to hold on to um, conservative wish list stuff. Uh, like, I don't know what drawing it out another week or two is really going to do for you. Um, and well, they've already I mean, they've already telegraphed their plan, right? I mean, they're already pushing for the CR so that they can get the automatic spending cuts. So, you know. You're, so Johnson's basically going to go to bat and fight for all these policy writers that don't have a chance um, and not get these people to vote for the bills that he's pushing for anyway at the end of the day. It's 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 really just coming down to the he, he's facing reality at this point. I mean, there was you know, we, we've we're now you know, a, a, a year plus into this majority that was really built all around this particular fight like appropriations this first uh swing at appropes like what are you going to do and the entire thing and i mean the entire thing going back to promises that kevin mccarthy had to make um and all of the language and all of the bills that the house moved on its own were all fantasy that none of this was was going to happen and they are now having to face the music uh about okay the you know, time is up. We now actually have to appropriate. This is what it looks like. This is what it's always had was always going to look like. It's going to look like what Kevin McCarthy and, and Joe Biden negotiated your desire to get a bunch of conservative policy wins that you've never been able to get before. I don't know why you think you're going to be able to get now. And so time's up like this is the deal. And the question is uh, not whether Freedom Caucus members are going to vote for it. We know that they're not. It's just whether the speaker is going to stop flirting with fantasy and just lean into getting done what you need to get done. Like I, I just want people to appreciate that, um, you know, even on ugly big appropriations bills, those whatever num- benchmark number you think you need to get even if it's just you know a bare majority of the majority or even here in some of the um, ways they're talking about doing it uh, under suspension you only need maybe like 80 or 90 votes you still need your speaker leaning into that and saying this is the best deal we were going to get this is a good deal this is worthy of your support and trying to rally your team to vote for it. And we are days away from it and certainly haven't seen that. And it certainly feels very wishy-washy, uh, the, the speaker's support for whatever this ultimate agreement is going to be. So I'm just very worried that uh, they are either not going to be able to get an agreement because the speaker is so concerned about what conservatives are going to say, or if they do get an agreement, he's going to be so lukewarm on it, they're going to have a hard time passing it. Um, and there's been a lot of chatter about his, his unwillingness to make decisions or lean into things. But like, this is the moment where you have to do it. You have been in the job long enough. You've been negotiating long enough to understand what you can actually get, what's achievable, what's reality, and what's not. And now that you see it, you kind of have to make a deal, lean into it, and try to pass it. And so I think this is a very, very interesting week. Yeah, it really is all kind of coming down to this moment that we've been talking about again and again. Um, What's he going to do? I mean, do you think there's any chance that he, you know, continues to sort of not be able to make a decision, make a call and decides he wants to allow the shutdown for like three, four days over the weekend just to have some people feel pain and then feel like he can come to a place? I mean, to be clear, I'm not advocating for this. (laughs) 
No, it's a really good question. I guess one of the things you have to think about is like, what would this shutdown actually be over? Right? Like you have a lot of, well, we don't even have a deal and you have a bunch of just sort of general conservative animosity about uh, you know, the spending levels. But if you're actually shutting down, like, what are you, like, what are you drawing a firm line on? You know, this isn't, we're shutting down over Obamacare. We're shutting down over, we need to build a wall. What are you shutting down over here? I mean, as terms as, you know, sort of a political communications matter, uh, they haven't done a very good job defining what the underlying problem is, and certainly not in a way where you could actually come out um, with with any sort of uh, fig leaf win. So, yeah, it's certainly possible, if only because he seems unwilling to, to make a play call. It's not crazy to me to think that they spent all next week in a shutdown, or at least it's a partial shutdown, um, even including the president's state of the union uh during i know uh, i was just about uh, to shutdown. say that can you imagine yeah i mean that you say pain um there would be limited pain because it's only four bills and it's not four of the bigger ones now politically it does include the department of veteran affairs um it wouldn't stop benefits um but certainly it would be disruptive i would have to think well, I would also have to think from a leadership perspective from a, you know, again, we can argue about whether voters are really tracking all of this, you know, all of these different fights that are seeming to happen every month and a half. But I mean, I think if you put Biden in the State of the Union during a partial government shutdown, I mean, you're really giving him like a big hand to play uh, oh on, in an election year. Like, you know, you would you would like to think that Johnson and his team would be able to see that as just something as that they must avoid. Like that they cannot have a president giving this in the, you know, in the House chamber, like the optics of that. You would think that they would be smarter than that. I don't know that we can bank on that, but yeah, that would be, that would be incredible. Um, and look, let's just assume for a minute that they do get an agreement. So we are recording this Monday afternoon. Uh, it will, this will post, uh, early Tuesday. So if you're listening to this on Tuesday, you know, maybe they do have a deal, um, or, or sometime shortly thereafter. I think there are also really interesting questions about the the process that they're going to have to go through to pass this, as we've talked about, they are now resorting to suspension of the rules to pass pretty significant stuff, which you know usually suspensions are just for minor bills. Um, but because conservatives have taken over the rules committee, have decided that there's no, um, it's no big deal to take down a rule. Uh, the speaker is having to bring things up through this other process, which instead of a simple majority, 218 votes, requires 290 votes. Now, to my point earlier, I bet they could probably pass this small package with at 290 votes if, if they had to, but I wouldn't like guarantee it. So let's assume that most Democrats, if not all Democrats, let's assume all Democrats are going to vote for it. You still need 80 or 90 Republicans to vote for it. If this is considered to be a, a fold by the speaker, there's no good wins. The, the right is, is just you know going nuts on it. And this becomes sort of the vote that speaks for this big fight they've been having all year long, uh, all Congress long. Um, it's not hard to see this being really unpopular and requiring a lot of work 
among the leadership to get the 80 to 90 votes that you need. And we've had bad votes on debt limits, on appropriate, on omnibuses, where we don't do much better than that. And we were only able to get those 80, 90, maybe sometimes only 70 votes when you had the leadership making the case, leaning into it, doing media about why this was worthy of people's support, drawing some you know bigger point about why this is important. Uh, they better be willing to do that here because my sense is um, that getting those 80 votes back then when I was in the speaker's office was hard. I gotta imagine it's a lot harder now than it was even five or six years ago. So um, if they have to go on suspension, uh, they better be willing to do the work and not just assume just because you throw it up on suspension, it's gonna pass easily. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. We shouldn't assume that this thing is going to pass. I mean, the House is not coming in until Wednesday. The deadline is Friday. Um, I mean, that's not a lot of time. I mean, sometimes time can actually create more problems than it helps. But, you know, when you're trying to put up those kinds of numbers, like you do need a certain amount of time. Um, and I have heard from so many different people that there are so many different things floating out around there right now, like just whether it's going to like what this thing is going to look like. I mean, there seems to be really no agreement, no plan of what this actual appropriations package is going to look like. Now, some of these bills are, you know, kind of closer than others, right? But I mean, I've heard things like they're going to pull some of the appropriation bills from the March 8, which are closer to being done and put those in together with some of the March 1st bills. Like who knows if there's truth to that. But I think like just to underscore the point that like not only are they going to have to lean into this, but they're going to have to like educate members and, and be very clear about like what pieces are actually in this package and get people on board at the numbers that they need. Yeah. And the, the you know, if, if they're going to be following the 72 hour rule, um, they're going to have to get something out really by Tuesday to, to honor that. Um, and yeah, the education point, let, not to mention that still if they pass something in the House, it still has to go through the Senate. Are we facing one of those uh, weekend shutdowns just because, you know, one of the senators is cranky and doesn't want to make this too easy for anybody? So the time is clearly very short. Are we going to have to do another uh, short term CR, the thing that Johnson said he would never do again and already did once? Um, but it's just I completely forgot about that already. Yeah. Um, but. You know, I, I think all of this just underscores how totally unsustainable it is to just run the house on suspension. Um, there are going to be things like this that are important that you need to be able to pass with a simple majority. And um, this may become a, a situation where if Republicans are so incapable of moving bills on their own through the regular order, um, and I have a hard time even saying this, but like, because it's so beyond the normal way we've done things, you may have to just make the rules committee or at least the rules process more bipartisan. Um, and I know that would set Republicans on fire if you kind of tried to create a more bipartisan rules process. It would probably make Democrats pretty grumpy, too, if they feel like they need to bail out the majority on, on rules. I mean, there's no, there's nothing that says you can't pass a rule with Republicans and Democrats together. It's just always been that the majority always carries rule votes. Um, so you may have to get into territory where, okay, well, we can't pass this on suspension. 
Um, we can't pass a rule on our own. Like the only other real door there is bipartisan rules, uh, which would be, I think, a really interesting dynamic. Dems would obviously be asking for something, but just again, eats away, eats away, eats away at the speaker's leverage, um, which is, of course, why we're in this situation to begin with. And you touched on something earlier about making sure that leadership is really leaning into whatever package they decide to go forward with. And I'm kind of left wondering, um, I guess, just who exactly Johnson is sort of seeking counsel from during these matters. I mean, I think we've noted that his leadership team has been like kind of absent. Um, I don't know who he's talking to. Um, I just thought that Washington Post piece, I think it was over the weekend, was an interesting one. I think it featured your former boss, Brendan, uh, former Speaker Ryan, and then it had some interesting commentary from uh, McHenry, where I kind of felt like McHenry was sort of trying to give him advice almost. Um, And again, it reads like very critical, um, but... I actually took it as sort of like constructive, like maybe he they're not having those conversations. And so he's sort of resorting to sharing like, here's, you know, we need to, you know, you need to lean in, make these calls. You know, it's nice to have this idea of we're all working together and, you know, it's every every member is like so involved in all of these decisions and it's from the ground up like that's all great in principle but like functionally we need someone to be driving this process forward um so i i just thought that was i don't know if i was reading too much into into the intent behind that uh article no i i i think it was fascinating as well and mchenry in in particular i mean he he's gave some comments to CNN, I think, uh, over the last week, <laughs> something to the effect of, we need the speaker to be better. I mean, that's that's pretty harsh. That's a little more pointed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Somebody who has been an insider for the last, I don't know, 12 years, um, has been inside the, the leadership team, like knows what's what, knows how to do things, and um, obviously really frustrated. And we've talked in the past about uh, the speaker obviously has some uh, risk and threats from the hard right. That's always the case. But maybe the other thing he needs to be really worried about is do like the re- you know the regular rank and file lose lose confidence in his lack of decisiveness, lack of leadership. Um, I think it's really worth keeping a, a close eye on how the middle thinks. Um, you know. We may have underappreciated how Steve Scalise's absence has played into the last few months. You know, he was away getting treatment, and he is clearly the person at the leadership table who is closest to Johnson. So perhaps now that Scalise has uh, thankfully returned, that they have a better dynamic, and he has some somebody to really help guide some decision making. Um, I know when uh, Paul took over, we used. McCarthy a lot to help us figure out some of those early decisions because he had been there. Um, but man, uh, that that article, yeah, caught my eye. So, so did uh, all the reporting uh, on the elk retreat, which I just found really fascinating. Um, so if folks didn't see, um, or if folks don't uh, aren't aware of, of what this is, so the leadership structure, um, uh, there are sort of concentric circles of, of leadership, but one of the main structures is what's called the Elected Leadership Council, 
uh, which historically has been, as the name would imply, anybody who's been elected to a leadership position, speaker, leader, whip, um, NRCC chair, uh, and then a few usually like appointed folks like the rules chair or chief deputy whip, conference chair, of course. Um, there was some reporting about they had their retreat, which is a thing that the elk team usually does once a year, go off and, and do some planning. Um, and it sounds like Johnson did not get rave reviews from people in attendance for lack of, of vision. He apparently gave some um, unusual sermon to the members about what uh, was you know, what they needed to do and the stakes. But I guess my bigger concern, to your point, Annalise, is um, the elk has now become like 50 members. So you know, when I was in the speaker's office, elk was, you know, those seven, eight, depending on how you wanted to do it, you know, vice chair, a few other folks would be like 10, 10, 10 people. And I will tell you, when it was 10 people, it was probably more people than you needed in any room, and it was hard to make real decisions. And a lot of times, the real decisions got made in a smaller group, referred to as DMM. Uh, stands for Daily Management Meeting. That's where you've usually just got speaker, leader, whip, conference chair, maybe uh, chief deputy whip. Uh, but now, this is something that started under McCarthy, where you have, um, first of all, the Freedom Caucus chair is in attendance. Uh, as well as he's extended the thing to every committee chair. So you've got dozens of people now out trying to put together the game plan. And this desire to have inclusive leadership, I understand, but like ultimately somebody's got to make play calls. And when you have an organization where you have 50 people who all want to weigh in on what you want to do, no other organization anywhere in the world would set themselves up like that. And it just gets to how unproductive that kind of leadership is. Like at the end of the day, people at the top need to make calls. People may not like them, but if you just sit around and try to appease every single person and let every person help drive the steering wheel, it's never going to go anywhere. Uh, and I feel like that's a situation we've got in and that, that elk retreat just remembering that kind of feels like an extension of what's going on with his leadership at the house yeah the fact that you have the freedom caucus there like who's every you know everything they do is to disrupt you like how are you actually planning your year ahead um just at some point folks have got to realize like and, and i think the conference at large wants to be told what the plan is like they don't want 50 different people all trying to to steer the ship like they want someone to say here's what we're doing here's why let's go do it now they're gonna gripe about it of course um but this just all-inclusive leadership style is just clearly clearly not how you run an organization yeah they'll just have to create another uh committee with you know five people to actually get something done look if you would like a spot in leadership you can have it just just ask <laughs> well it reminds me of uh you know, the Republican Study Committee, which got so big that, you know, it was no longer conservative enough. So then that's how we got the Freedom Caucus. You know, that's just... Exactly. Control is a seven-letter word. 
And this podcast is a production of Seven Letter. Seven Letter is a leading strategic communications and bipartisan public affairs agency. Our work is powered by senior practitioners who develop and execute innovative communication solutions to take on complex challenges. Learn more at sevenletter.com. Now back to the program. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Ukraine, uh, because I think that's sort of something else that both of us are going to be keeping a close eye on uh, with the meeting this week with Biden. Obviously, um, there are a lot of interested uh, Democrats and Republicans in moving the Ukraine uh, package, the foreign aid package, and there are a lot of Republicans who have threatened uh, to do any number of things to Johnson should he dare to put this thing on the floor. Yeah, I, I um, it feels like, I don't know, maybe I'm being optimistic as somebody who thinks they should do this. It feels like this is going to happen somehow, some way. Now, the the president, you know, coming down to or bringing the leaders down to the White House for a meeting, uh, I guess, trying to crack some skulls or whatever, whatever he's trying to do. It probably is mostly just to kind of isolate Johnson. Um, and and make clear that you know this is a thing that, that needs to happen. But it gets back to what we talked about before. Is this a person who's willing to do what uh, certainly is the will of the house, but what the you know clear, obvious right thing, and I'm sure he understands it's the right thing to do um, at risk of his own job. I don't know. I just don't know if this is the type of person who's who's willing to do that. Um, but again, McHenry had some very interesting comments about, you know, that this is clearly the overwhelming majority of the House want to do this. And you've got a lot of people, a lot of Republicans who are very openly saying this is going to happen. Like and people who know how this place works, like this is going to happen one way or another. Like you can't just be the one person throwing up the roadblock for forever when the votes are so clearly there. Yeah. I mean, when you have such an overwhelming group of people that, you know, want us want to um, want to pass this legislation. I think it's really hard for uh, leadership to sort of continue to try and stand in the way of that. Now, they might try to extract something uh, on the basis of moving it forward. I mean, maybe that's the leverage that Johnson's looking at right now to figure out, um, you know, maybe hopefully he's seeing this writing on the wall and is like, okay, um, in this meeting, what do I uh, want to ask for? What what can I extract? Because he knows that this is uh, inevitably going to be coming up on the House floor. So maybe he's thinking about it like that. I don't know. Yeah, I, it's hard to it's hard to ask for leverage when you've just proven that you can't really do anything on your own. Um, like Fair. every everything that they have to do now, they they have to rely on Democrats and even. Uh, you know, even stuff that he wanted to do as a tactical move, passing the Israel-only aid, he couldn't do. Uh, he had to go, you know, as we talked about before, he had to do it on suspension because he couldn't pass a rule, and so it failed. And so it's not like you have, um, you know, political leverage, but you also don't have any sort of maneuverability and so you're just kind of sitting there like a sitting duck, like, oh, yeah, OK, well, Mr. Speaker, if you don't think this is the right way to do it, put up your bill. Like they tried that and failed. Um, and I think it just becomes very clear, like this is about making sure that Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't get upset at you. And if you're living your life that way, like that's just not a good way to be speaker. Um, it, the other reality is like he may just you know, 
come to terms with the fact that there may be a discharge petition on this. And, um, you know, oftentimes discharge petitions are headed off because you just don't like the precedent that that's setting, that, you know, people are defying your leadership, so you bring a bill up um, anyway. Uh, And so that's, I think, going to become an increasingly live option. Yeah, it's feeling like there is momentum behind the discharge petition. And I think we've we've spent a fair amount of time um, on this podcast saying that you're never going to see a discharge petition related to uh, certain other topics. But it does feel like this is uh, this feels a little bit different. Um, yeah, we talked anyway. about yeah, we talked about it a lot in the terms of the debt limit and they obviously didn't need it for that. And I guess I would say what's different between then and now? Um, one, I think there you have a ton more Republicans on the record insisting that this is important than potentially over the debt limit. Like no one was sticking their neck out for the debt limit, but you got a lot of Republicans who will very clearly talk about the importance of supporting Ukraine right now. It's an unpopular position in the conference, um, sure, with a lot of people, but there are also still a lot of people who are very firmly uh, in favor of it. But maybe the bigger difference is all the crazy stuff that has happened since then. (laughs) Uh, They've voted out the speaker. They have defeated a bunch of rules. Um, The floor has basically just been hijacked by conservatives. And we didn't just feel like anything is possible. Anything goes now. So like, uh, you know, we, we, nobody would sign discharge petitions in the past because that was just sort of an understood rule. Like those were the norms. You don't work with the minority to do a discharge petition. What norms, like what norms still exist at this point? And if you are somebody who thinks this is important and you've watched conservatives blow up the house time and time and time and time again and break all of those norms, like one of the norms was you don't vote against a rule. That happens all the time now. So maybe supporting a discharge petition isn't actually that crazy anymore. Like, I'm not saying this is definitely going to happen. I'm not saying that it wouldn't be a big deal. I'm just saying if you're somebody sitting there and you see all of your colleagues acting like they owe nothing to the team, maybe you owe nothing to the team. And if you think this is the really, this is a really important policy decision and the timing is urgent and it's the right thing to do, uh, maybe they, maybe there will be enough to get that done. And you know, it'll happen by going around Johnson. Uh, not a great place for him to be. But so, like, again, I can't say it's definitely going to happen, but it just feels like there is some level of inevitability to this, whether Johnson wants to be cooperative um, or just allow himself to get rolled. This is the moment that moderates finally step up. and. But it's not moderates. Like, it can, it can be, like, you know, hardcore national security guys. But, yes, yeah, so, to a certain degree... Yeah, well, it's not the Freedom so. Caucus. Yeah, rank and file, I should say. It's just like, you know, the, the the men and women in Congress that are typically not voting against rules or typically not doing these things that go against the regular order of the House. Like, this could be the time that they really step up and decide they're going to sign this discharge petition. Yeah. We'll and see. Obviously, the timing, like all of this sort of colliding with the appropriation stuff is, is not great. It just adds to a lot of stress on the leadership and speaker and all that but i don't know i just i don't know how much folks are really scared of the speaker maybe they're scared of some of their conservative colleagues and don't want to do that scared of trump whatever it may be um like 
don't get me wrong, like it would be controversial and it, some people would pay a political price for it. But um, look, Patrick McHenry was asked, I hate to keep referencing him, but you know, he, this is a guy who, who knows what he's doing, you know, was asked about whether he would sign a discharge petition. Like this is a person who would for years enforce this idea that you don't sign discharge petitions. And his answer was not, no, I never signed a discharge petition. It was, I haven't seen one yet. And with like almost like a wink, wink as he said it. Uh, so if someone like that is putting this on the table, then who knows? Um, I yeah, don't, all I, of us in comms know what that means. I haven't seen it yet. I'm looking at it. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, okay. Speaking of something that was that's also unorthodox. I mean, the reports of Gottheimer circulating a resolution to potentially bail out Johnson uh, from a potential removal attempt, I thought was an interesting development. I mean, it makes sense. Um, look, I, I I didn't know how Democrats how Democrats would vote and shows you, you know, not as plugged in on that side. I, I thought it was an open question how Democrats would vote on kicking out McCarthy. Um, <laughs> clearly, they were very, uh, uh, they knew United. exactly. Yes, they knew what they were doing there. Um, it wasn't an open question for them. Uh, but that was, I guess, at least to, to hear them say it was just because, you know, McCarthy had lost their trust and they just, you know, over a number of decisions he had made, didn't think he was worth saving. Um, I don't know that I would say that they think that Johnson is worth saving today, but if he gets a threat to remove him for what they would consider doing the right thing, it seems very possible that there would be enough Democrats who would step in and and block any motion to vacate. Um, yeah, to be clear, this was definitely contingent on a lot of things. So it, it's not. I, I I didn't read it as something like sort of whatever happens if he were to face this this threat, they would be uh, you know sort of there to support him. That's yeah. definitely not the case. And it's not a position you want to be in, right? Where you have the minority saving your job. Um, and perhaps I would have once said, uh, look, dare him to do it. Just you know make your policy call, lean into it, defend it, and and dare the far right to take you out. Well, <laughs> some of them have proven that they're actually willing to do that. Um, but I don't know that that would be a particularly popular move uh, right on the heels of, of that. And I think they've all realized that, um, maybe they haven't realized, they should realize that changing their speaker doesn't necessarily uh, change their fortunes. Um, or change but, who's in the White House, change who's in the Senate. Well, there you go. Uh, so yeah, like that didn't, wouldn't surprise me if Democrats bailed him out if he did the quote unquote right thing. Um, but I'm not sure that that's really all that, uh, like that doesn't, that's not like a free pass for Johnson to do whatever he wants. Cause he's still in a lot of trouble if, if that ends up being how he keeps his job. Yeah. Well, since we're talking about things that are unlikely, but possible in this brand new world of whatever's going on in the house. I mean, I do think the only way that this could work is if like, and this is kind of West Wing, so bear with me, but if House Republicans outside of Freedom Caucus decide they've had enough, they sort of band together with Dems, they sort of decide that, you know, what that that's the only way that he could have any semblance of like retaining the support at a conference and, and moving beyond something like this, because you're right, you don't want to be facing that kind of 
um, existential threat from your conference. Now, I don't, I don't know how they would vote, how Democrats would vote, but I do think that it being an election year and just the, I just find it difficult from the, you know, from the political perspective of helping Republicans get themselves out of a mess in an election year, um, which is why I don't think that would ever happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's one of those situations where you only need so few Republicans to do something that is pretty stupid, candidly. Um, people like it's funny how quickly people forget how actually unpopular it was to get rid of McCarthy. Those eight folks were catching a lot of heat from the rest of their colleagues. Um, but and it's only been four months. Yeah. Can you believe that? Yeah, I know I can. Um, so look, uh, no good options for, for Johnson. I guess like my bottom line is, uh, being wishy-washy and, and kind of just sitting on your hands um, is not a great approach. And the thing that this conference will respect the most is um, uh, standing up tall and, and saying what you, know, you believe and what you think the right thing is and going out and communicating that publicly, making your case publicly and, 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 and explaining yourself. Um, but if you think that you can kind of just play both sides, wait, feel it out. Like they're going to sense weakness. And um, I, I worry that's that's kind of what, what's going on here. They think this is somebody that they can push around. And if you just allow them to do that, um, bad things will continue to happen. Okay, so our favorite uh, segment of the program, Shut Down Watch. Uh, Brendan, with all of this being said, uh, how confident are you that the House Republicans are going to be able to avert a partial government shutdown by the end of this week. I feel like we do this differently every time, um, how we gauge it. Maybe we should do like a one out of 10, like how likely is shutdown on Friday? Is that fair? Yeah, let's do it. Um, okay, so partial shutdown Friday, not because like Rand Paul uh, is like keeping them in over the weekend. I don't count that, but like the house has not passed something Friday night at midnight, either a CR or anything. And we're actually like, you know, intentional shutdown. Um, I will put that at a six right now. I think five would be probably what I would put it at, but that's no fun because that's just like not taking sides. So I will say there is a slightly more than even chance that we are going to see a shutdown, which is way higher than I would have thought like two weeks ago. So using that logic, I'm going to come in at a four out of 10 because I think that it's not that likely only for, only because I have to, I have to believe that there is someone in the room with Johnson saying like, we have to figure this out before the state of the union. Like they're just, we cannot have a, a shutdown over the state of the union, like just optically. Um, so even if that means that they're passing like a week long CR, I just think that, that they'll just do something like that to avoid that situation. Yeah, that may be right. And look, um, I'm just, you know, I, I'm, I'm gauging that off of vibes purely right now, or maybe not purely off of vibes. Like they were supposed to introduce something on Sunday and they did not. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, and it's often the case that things are ugliest right before they come together. So uh, perhaps they'll get something together quickly, but like even getting the deal, I mean, that's, that's what's so hard about this is 
getting the deal is one step. Johnson deciding whether or not he actually wants to lean into it is another step. Uh, and then figuring out the process by which you can get it to the floor. And then do you have the votes? Like it's just much more complicated than it used to be. I mean, we always had these big, ugly votes and they, we knew they were going to suck, but it was never really in question of whether we were going to support them uh, or whether or how you were going to bring them up or how we were going to bring them up or whether the votes were there. Like you kind of like you had to work at it, but you knew you were always going to get there. Some of those things that you sort of take for granted, I don't know that you can take for granted. Like the suck was still the same, but we could still execute it. And now there's the suck, but I don't know if they actually are like, can be assumed to be able to execute it. Um, so yeah, but again, they they may be able to pull it off. It's just bad vibes on Monday afternoon here as as we talk. Um, we'll obviously um, <laughs> be tracking it. Yeah, we'll leave it there. Bad vibes. Uh, thanks everyone for joining this week's episode of Control. Uh, we'll be back next week to cover uh, Congress, of course, and the State of the Union. Hope you can tune in. We'll be back next week, and I think I'm flying solo. Is that right? Next week, Annalise. Yeah, turning, that's right. Turning, Annalise is not with us next week, so we're just turning over the mic to me. Go, go, go deep, deep on the House process stuff, and there's nothing she can do to stop me. Um, so No one we, to interrupt you. No one to interrupt me, uh, which I love. Uh, yeah, we will be back with you next week, State of the Union week. Maybe we'll be in a government shutdown. Who knows? But uh, thanks, as always, for tuning into Control. Control is a production of Seven Letter a leading strategic communications firm in Washington, D.C. and Boston with deep experience in bipartisan public affairs, public relations, crisis management, digital strategy, and corporate engagement. Special thanks to our producer, Benji Englander. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please join us next week for another episode, and don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you for listening.